is an in-depth story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. I wasn't a fantasy buff as a kid, so I only had a passing familiarity with He-Man. I may have seen the cartoon once or twice on TV and thought, huh, that looks a lot like the Star Trek animated series, and I had a friend or two who collected the toys. I remember thinking it was really generic looking, like Conan or Thunder or any old barbarian, except with some sci-fi elements thrown in, probably because Star Wars was all the rage. It had hovercrafts and robots and ray guns, and I remember thinking He-Man was the most redundant name for a superhero ever. All the other something-mans had a theme or a gimmick in front of man. Spider-Man had spider powers. Plastic Man had elastic powers. Batman looked like a bat. So what was He-Man's deal? His motif was being a man? What is he, like the pinnacle of masculinity? I suppose he is. He's big and strong and muscular. He's got that chiseled jaw. He's wearing next to nothing to show off all that beefy manliness. He's got that huge sword, which makes him mighty. He's a prince waiting to rule his kingdom. He's a courageous warrior ready for anything, and all the ladies love him. Might as well call him Man-Man. He's everything men want to be circa 1982. The guy even rides around on a battle cat. What's more manly than riding a big cat with a huge medieval saddle? The live-action film came out in 1987. I was just three years old and saw it on TV a few years after that. Before watching it again for this review, I remembered exactly three things about it. Stormtroopers flying around on hoverboards in a normal-looking city, the awesome interior Castle Grayskull set, and Skeletor showing up after the credits. I had never seen an end-credit scene, and that totally blew my mind. Never mind that it's ripping off the Terminator, I'll be back, and that it promises a sequel that never came to fruition. I saw that movie exactly one time, probably around 91 or 92, and more of it stuck with me than Green Lantern did four years after seeing that twice in a movie theater. This time, after seeing the canon logo at the beginning and remembering how well Superman 4 came together, I braced myself for a movie that was likely poorly directed, poorly acted, and incomprehensible. I wasn't really expecting this to be watchable or that there would be a lot of story to sink my analytical teeth into. The verdict 20-something years later... Well, it's odd, that's for sure, and it's not real well directed, but I think I like it better than Green Lantern. It's a really strange movie to try to review because it's hard to separate my nostalgia for this period from my critical brain as it scratches a lot of late 80s itches. It made me crave a little arena rock, some REO Speedwagon or Foreigner, made me want to play some 8-bit Nintendo, and of course it put me in the mood for Star Wars. I imagine Star Wars was an influence on the action figures and TV show, but the movie unapologetically just rips off the look everywhere. Skeletor is shot from behind, a lot like Darth Vader. He has lightning powers like the Emperor. His shot troops look like TIE fighter pilots. Everybody's got blasters that shoot brightly colored laser beams. Several of the creatures feel wars-inspired. And then, just look at the basic situation here. You have an oppressive, fascist ruler who's being opposed by a small rebel force. One side is admittedly light, the other admittedly dark. 
The villain knows he's bad, worships badness, is repelled by goodness, and the conflict is resolved by an epic sword fight with the bad guy falling to his doom. Cannon even tried to sell it as Star Wars for the 80s. I guess what that series was missing was synth pop and, you know, uh, the 80s. All that blatant lifting of material should bother me more than it does, but this cast is playing this outlandish material as straight as the cast of Star Wars did. And since Eternia is a medieval-looking world infused with advanced technology, the galaxy far, far away look kind of works for it. Maybe I don't hate it because a lot of the rest of the design isn't totally derivative. It's a little like The Last Starfighter, where it's obvious what it's borrowing from, but it manages to create a look and a feel all its own. The other thing that makes this movie hard to look at with any real historical perspective is this all-star cast, because it wasn't an all-star cast in 1987. I can't help but recognize these well-known actors, some of them in their movie debut here, and that gives the movie an extra layer of charm. And now I'd like to convey the experience I had with this movie at the age of 30, by providing a completely subjective, contemporary plot synopsis, putting myself squarely in this year, not in 1987. So Punisher Thor and his Warriors 3 fight Darth Richard Nixon, who is after absolute power over the land, and it looks like all four of its citizens. Remember, if Darth Richard Nixon does it, it's not illegal. Nixon's forces are almost too much for Punisher Thor and his company, so they're forced to retreat through an interdimensional portal that opens via the intro to a Styx concert. Our heroes wind up in America circa 1987, where they meet Monica Geller, an employee at a fast food chicken restaurant, who's apparently learned a lot of self-control working there and maintaining that figure, and her boyfriend, Tom Paris. While visiting her parents' grave, Monica and Tom Paris find a strange alien-looking artifact, and typically, Paris ends up running off without his girlfriend hours before she's about to move away for good in favor of studying a new toy he doesn't understand and that's about to get him in big trouble. He thinks it's a New Age synthesizer, a reasonable assumption since it's providing a lot of the film's score whenever he activates it, but he's actually setting off a beacon to provide Darth Nixon with his coordinates. Nixon sends his minions and they burn down the high school building looking for the Dennis DeYoung device, nearly killing Monica Geller in the process, and Detective Principal Strickland shows up suspicious of Tom Paris because he's a slacker. The rest of the movie is a drawn-out game of keep-away, as Darth Nixon's people and, when he gets fed up sitting around giving holographic press conferences, Nixon himself, keep trying to get their hands on the device. Eventually, Nixon captures Punisher Thor and punishes him, to set an example to the other four citizens of Eternia that there is no hope and the rules apply to everyone but him. Tom Paris, as always, uses his knowledge of 20th century technology to help the Warriors Three return home, and there's a giant firefight. Of course, Principal Strickland brought a shotgun. Nixon almost gets away with his evil conspiracy, but Punisher Thor proves himself worthy of the Sword of Grayskull, and takes Nixon's power away from him. Principal Strickland lives in Eternia happily ever after, and Monica and Tom Paris are sent back in time to fix the mistake Monica made that indirectly caused her parents' death, completely disregarding any potential damage to the timeline or ethical ambiguity. The End. I mean, really, this movie is way more fun after a lot of these actors have gone on and had successful careers. I can't believe how similar Robert Duncan McNeil's character here is to Tom Paris, the Starfleet pilot he'd play almost a decade later in Star Trek Voyager. And while I can't really praise a movie for including a bunch of actors nobody knew at the time, just because I know who they are now, this is a really talented cast, and there's a reason they became celebrities after this. The Kevin and Julie characters are shoehorned in here because the studio insisted on an Earth-centric story. 
story to save money. And their subplot is rushed and not well integrated at all into the main story, but both characters are likable, if not always the sharpest blade in their respective sheath. There's a lot of sincere, believable innocence in their performances, and they have a genuine chemistry together. I like the look of most of it a lot. There's some really impressive, lavish sets, some fantastic matte paintings, and some neat costuming and makeup design. The makeup was done by Michael Westmore, who did the prosthetics in Star Trek from the year this movie came out, 1987, onward through the Berman and Braga years, including designing the Cardassians and the Borg. It is sometimes refreshing to go back to a movie like this and enjoy so many practical effects and the charm of miniatures and real sets. Some of it is shoddy, and the budget certainly wasn't there to effectively accomplish some of what what it sets out to do, but the Eternia stuff especially is really cool. But, while there are sparks here and there of good ideas, the story is really padded in the middle, and there are several random subplots that don't come together to create a cohesive whole. I'm not going to begrudge a movie like this a standard good versus evil plot, and I'm not even going to expect a whole lot of character dimension. This is a movie based on a series of action figures, and to its credit, when it's really working, it feels plotted by kids sitting on the floor playing He-Man. It has that in common with Batman and Robin, except the kids playing with these toys have a little imagination. The opening few minutes in Eternia play like a live-action cartoon, a totally absurd melodrama that's played completely straight, and it's fantastic. It's too bad director Gary Goddard, wow, the man himself sounds like he could have been a superhero, wasn't given the resources to do the whole movie that way. An action spectacle is this guy's forte. Most of his career has been creating theme park rides based on big Hollywood properties like Jurassic Park. This is the guy who designed the, sadly, now dismantled Star Trek The Experience in Vegas. It could have been an epic escapist fantasy romp, but instead, we got human teenagers with their own baggage the movie doesn't spend nearly enough time developing or making relevant to the grander narrative, and what Goddard calls in his commentary a fish-out-of-water story, which I'd argue with him isn't a story so much as routine comedy filler. It's like ALF, or My Favorite Martian, or Third Rock from the Sun, aliens on our familiar planet finding it as alien as if we were to visit theirs. And while that can be endearing, like I think it was in E.T., it usually leads to tedious slapstick comedy. What's worse here than in other stories of its kind is that Goddard clearly isn't interested in this stuff. He wants to make a He-Man movie, and he's stuck setting it in music shops and high schools. Good move on his part, bringing Skeletor himself and his army here eventually, so that at least the stuff that really works isn't just bookending the movie. Skeletor's huge hover throne moving through downtown is pretty awesome, and the juxtaposition of this bizarre techno-medieval stuff in contemporary 1987 suburbia is neat, but we have to sit through too many scenes like the Eternians eating chicken and being appalled to find that they're devouring animal flesh. I guess they're so enlightened that they're all vegetarians, and even though they're warriors, everybody but man-at-arms can't recognize meat on a bone for some reason. At least it's never as awkward as it gets in the Supergirl movie. Part of the problem is that the POV characters keep shifting. Who is this story about? Who are our protagonists? I guess kinda just the human characters. They each have disconnected arcs to go through, and each is less of an arc and more of just dealing with whatever's trying to kill them until they're forced out of nowhere aha moment, when one of the Eternians comes right out and tells us what we're supposed to have learned from them. All the alien characters remain static, which is appropriate since they're based on one-dimensional action figures and cartoon characters, and yet we have to wander around with them while they fumble around Earth. What is the point? There's nothing to them. He-Man, Man-at-Arms, and Teela are all noble heroes who fight for the people. That's it. Gwildor is the cute, bumbling, dwarf-like character that seems to show up in every fantasy movie from this period, and another genius scientist who's trying to keep his inventions from falling into the wrong hands. 
He reminds me of the tiny astronomer who leads Atreyu to the Oracle in the never-ending story. These are all archetypes we're familiar with, and if it didn't present itself as any more sophisticated than the high-concept cartoon it's based on, as long as these characters had a little wisecracking personality and they weren't winking at the audience constantly, we might accept it. As it is, because we have to go to Earth, it's that for a minute, and then suddenly it's a totally different movie. Now these normal high school kids with regular everyday problems and this bizarre other world intruding onto their own. There are two stories here, and even when they converge, they never feel quite married properly. The movie should have been played either as an alien invasion story, with our human characters front and center realizing how much larger the universe is than they thought, maybe a story where their personal problems are put in perspective once freaking Skeletor shows up, or else it should have actually been that fish-out-of-water story, where the POV is squarely with He-Man and his friends, and we see our world from their alien perspective. Shifting the POV constantly like this bogs the story down, and it makes it about not very much of anything, except your basic good triumphs over evil message and some watered-down platitudes. The artifact that everybody's after is a little more interesting than your average coveted plot device gizmo. It's a portal device that uses musical tones to open doorways to other worlds. It's covered in tuning forks to create those tones that it just happens to sound like a rock synthesizer. And Kevin just happens to be the sort of musician that would have a use for it, to contrive a reason for the thing to be activated and for Skeletor to find out where his arch nemesis went. Gwildor built it, and he has a throwaway line about the universe being music, which is potentially a cool idea, but nothing's really done with it past just introducing the notion. Maybe the idea is that music is the universal language, and so it literally breaks through boundaries. Kind of corny, but it might work with this material. But if that's the idea, it's made a little awkward by the fact that everybody in this movie speaks English. The other spelled out moral, again to Kevin, is when he's suddenly pouting about being insignificant. Now, this hasn't been a prevailing character trait for him until now, really. In fact, beyond just being a musician and sad that his girlfriend is moving away, we don't know much of anything about him. The cop, Lubick, acts like he's a juvenile delinquent and obsesses with taking him to jail for stuff that's not really his fault. Maybe he's supposed to be that directionless kid that's constantly getting himself into trouble, again, like Tom Paris, but the movie's failing to communicate that. Suddenly, Kevin feels useless just when the movie needs a contrivance to get the cosmic key working again so the Eternians can get home and he can feel relevant. Gwildor has this sappy speech about how there's only one of everybody, meaning that we're all unique and we all have something all our own to contribute. That might have been really touching if it didn't feel shoved in there with nothing building toward it. And it's too bad that idea wasn't better integrated because there was a chance there to connect up a free will versus destiny theme to Skeletor, as it sometimes suggested that Skeletor might have a choice, and he doesn't have to be an evil despot if he doesn't want to be. The idea being that everyone is unique, everyone has a kind of power, but we all have a choice as to how we use it. Those ideas aren't linked in any way, though, so I'm forced to see it as a pointless throwaway line just to make it appear like Kevin had some sort of character arc. Now, of course, I don't need super complex backstories for He-Man and Skeletor, or really thought-provoking opposing philosophies for each of them. He-Man is purely good, Skeletor purely evil. You can't have one without the other, and they know that. They fight because that's their role in life, to prove once and for all that their side will ultimately win out. I love that Skeletor has such a fascination with his and He-Man's relationship, not unlike Batman and the Joker, and I love that this isn't an origin story. There have been a million episodes of this live-action cartoon show before this. We don't need to see them, because they're all the same. 
The villain has a master plan, the hero wins, the end. Skeletor always comes back and tries again because in his mind, it's his destiny. It doesn't matter that he always loses. Every episode is potentially the one where evil finally overcomes good. And so the break in status quo here is that Skeletor finally seems to have taken possession of ultimate power. He really might win this time. And he gets closer than he probably ever will again. But by the end, it's just another day at the office. Big climactic sword fight, He-Man wins, Skeletor lives to fight another day. And so what looks like, finally, the end of that vicious cycle turns out to be the ultimate episode that proves the rule. This is a traditional superhero story. It always turns out the same way. The good guy who refuses to kneel before evil, who can have great power without being corrupted by it, always wins. Forget all the money-saving Earth scenes, that's what this movie really has going for it for me. It's a little different than your average Good Always Triumphs movie, because the villain, in a curiously Shakespearean way, can almost peer out of the movie screen and see exactly the sort of simple, two-dimensional, consequenceless world he lives in. I gotta say, I almost feel sorry for Skeletor. He talks about how he and He-Man have been doing this for eternity. He lives in a land called Eternia, a place made for this never-ending battle. The man is called Skeletor. He has a horribly disfigured skull face. He's made to be evil. The source of unlimited power is located in a giant skull castle. He is an action figure in an evil lair playset. What would you do if you were molded in plastic to be the personification of evil and then put in that? That place. What the heck else could you do? It's kind of the only place you'd fit in. It's not like you're going to move to suburbia and be the third point of a love triangle with Barbie and Ken. The sorceress acts like Skeletor has a choice in the matter, saying that men obsessed with power look back on their mistakes and call it destiny. I like that line a lot. But this world seems designed for him and He-Man to do what they've been doing. We don't know his backstory, and maybe he's completely responsible for everything that led to his being a creepy skull-faced egotist. I like that there are ambiguous hints that there's a little more to Skeletor than meets the eye, and Frank Langella plays it with a hint of mystery and maybe even a little tragedy. He seems trapped by the rules of the world he embodies. I can see a tiny bit of commentary on the formula itself seeping in. Every hero needs an opposite to define just how good he is. One of my favorite lines is toward the end, when Skeletor, having beaten He-Man and becoming a god, seeming to have won the day, chooses that moment to say this. Tell me, He-Man, about the loneliness of good. Is it equal to the loneliness of evil? There's a little more to this guy than the cartoon version. He says he deserves power. Says if he doesn't possess everything, he possesses nothing. He's entitled and ruthless and a megalomaniac. But every now and then, he gets really thoughtful and seems to have maybe sacrificed a lot for this role he can't help but fill. Does Skeletor really have a choice? Or is he the brain? Every night he tries to take over the world, every night he fails, but he's compelled to try again the next night. I'm sure I'm giving way too much credence to this idea, but Skeletor seems like the most thoughtful and self-aware character in the movie, not to mention the most interesting and most fun. Sometimes it's hard not to think he got the short end of the stick. Like, of course he's trying to get unlimited power. That's his job as much as it's He-Man's job to stop him. He-Man chooses to do the right thing just because, like Skeletor, he has a role to play. The difference is, he has a little personality and he acts like a robot, just doing whatever the formula calls for. I like Skeletor because while he does his duty as the evil antagonist, he asks questions, and when he embraces his role, he revels in it. He-Man is kind of just going through the motions. Dolph Lundgren doesn't have near the screen presence Frank Langella does, and frankly, feels like he could be replaced with any generic superhero. It doesn't really help that this is Lundgren 
Lindgren's first starring role, and he often looks confused. I keep wondering where He-Man is in his own movie for minutes at a time, and then he starts talking, and I'm okay when he's gone again. He-Man is Skeletor's equal because Skeletor tells us he is. I don't believe that based on anything he's doing. The script doesn't seem sure what to do with He-Man. In a movie filled with protagonists, it's hard to call him one. He's more of a plot device to get the movie started and then to end it. He's just along for the ride most of the movie, propelled along with the rest of his friends by a standard artifact plot. He doesn't do anything remotely interesting until the end of the second act, when Skeletor gives him a sadistic choice. He can save himself and let his innocent human friends perish, or spare them by becoming Skeletor's slave, which for a completely altruistic hero like He-Man is, of course, no choice at all. Back in Eternia, He-Man stands there and takes a futuristic beating, refusing to kneel before his evil nemesis. Finally! Something! Risking only himself, he refuses to give in to evil. That's the closest we get to anything uniquely He-Man. And even that, while admirable, is kind of to be expected. And then he beats the bad guy pretty darn easily, and I'm back to seeing him as a plot device. Jeez, I mean, here's Skeletor working his butt off, and all He-Man has to do is stand around, take a laser whip, and wait for the obligatory climactic action scene. Moonrise comes, the thing happens with the mystic eye, or whatever, and Skeletor levels up to Infinity Gauntlet status. And He-Man wins, not because he outwits Skeletor, doesn't have any neat trick up his sleeve, but just because he's the good guy, and it's that time of the movie. Now, to be fair, Skeletor does kind of shoot himself in the foot, perhaps falling into that trap of being careful right at the end so the hero can beat him because, again, try as he might, he can never fully escape the traits of his archetype. Or perhaps because the script is just really lazy in this part. I mean, really lazy. So here's what happens. Earlier on Earth, Skeletor decides not to execute He-Man's human friends because by keeping them alive, he can hold He-Man to his promise of being his slave. I like that. He's using He-Man's moral code against him. He also chooses not to kill He-Man because he doesn't want to make a martyr out of him. I like that too. But then, Skeletor throws all this away just to get the Danumont going by ordering his troops to kill the humans when they find a way to Eternia. He-Man challenges this decision, reminding Skeletor that he gave him his word, and Skeletor predictably shoots back with, I lied. Now, I'm not suggesting Skeletor should have a shred of human decency, and this might have made perfect sense if he decided to change his plans now that an X-Factor is introduced. Whatever, I'm turning into a god, I don't have time for this crap, kill them all. But then, Skeletor barks more orders to his minions not to kill He-Man. I want him alive! Okay... Getting the Cosmic Key was all about tying up loose ends, not really about the key itself. And that's another thing I kind of like. Yes, it's a MacGuffin-chasing plot, but at least it's not a generic ultimate power kind of thing. A Skeletor already has the power! He just has to wait for it to download. See, that's what happens when you illegally torrent Supreme Godhood rather than getting in your enormous theatrical hovercraft and flying down to Walmart like the rest of us. So yeah, the ticking time bomb is kind of a contrived plot device to have a looming threat in the background and to give He-Man and his barely characterized cronies time to wander around Earth to pad the movie out. But I do like the reason Skeletor is after the key. He's having to wait around too, and he knows that if He-Man's left to his own devices, he'll show up at the last minute and stop Skeletor, just like he does every Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. But why not just capture the humans and hold He-Man to his word if you're not going to try to kill him too? He's not going to cooperate with you after you've sliced up Monica Geller and Tom Paris. I mean, what would the 90s be without Friends or Voyager? Sure, there's always the chance for that corny action movie moment where the least capable captured characters find some flaw in a cage or trick a really stupid guard to get close enough to get the keys, 
But if I'm a B-movie villain like Skeletor, I'd rather risk that than give the hero who never loses any opportunity to turn against me once I have control over him. You can't have your cake and eat it too on this Skeletor. And then, He-Man defeats Skeletor essentially the same way Silver Surfer beats Galactus in the second Fantastic Four movie, by hitting him with a sliver of the power he has already. How does that work? So Skeletor puts He-Man's sword in his chair and some lights blink. We're not told what the point of that is. If you know anything about the cartoon, you might assume that the sword is magic and powerful, and Skeletor needs that to HAVE THE POWER! Except that A, He-Man never demonstrates any special powers with the sword and doesn't use it to transform in this version, and B, when Skeletor is chasing He-Man down, he doesn't seem to be after the sword. It's just an extra bonus he gets for capturing He-Man, like he picked up a special item in a Zelda level or something. So He-Man gets some of Skeletor's power in the sword, so he can have a really vague reason for being able to defeat a god, and so we can get that trademark He-Man catchphrase in there somewhere. And while we're on the subject of stuff that's different from the TV show, as always, it doesn't have to be exactly like the thing it's adapting if what's here stands alone well and is compelling in its own right. But didn't we have a perfect way to build in the Earth stuff in the original cartoon? He-Man is half-human there, and instead of doing something cool with that, we just flip through our universal Rolodex and conveniently, we land on Earth. And I'm not sure what purpose the dual identity would have served in this story, but having He-Man turn into Prince Adam would have given him more to do, and at the very least, given us some sense of what kind of system of government Eternia has when Skeletor hasn't taken over. Everybody acts all knights of the round table, but there's no real hint of a monarchy. Besides the scientist gnome, we don't know what roles any of these people serve except being generally heroic. The cosmic key, while I like some things about it in concept, is way too powerful and nobody acknowledges it. We find out at the very end that the thing can not only take you anywhere in space, but anywhere to quote Gwildor in your planet's history. We'll get to how headache-inducing the time travel is in just a minute, but if it's a time machine, that instantly deflates any tension or stakes that were ever there in the first place, except for when the Eternians lost the thing. Once it was in their possession again, all they had to do was go back to before Skeletor got his hands on Castle Grayskull and develop a better strategy for stopping that. Good thing it's not revealed that I recall that it's a time machine until the very end of the movie. And maybe it'll totally slip audiences' radar now that everything's all happily ever after. Before sending Kevin and Julie back, Gwildor tells them they can go back to any time in Earth's history. Somehow, after all that brooding about her parents' death and feeling responsible because if only she hadn't lied to them about spending the day with Kevin instead of doing her homework, they wouldn't have gotten in a freak plane accident, Julie doesn't immediately consider having Gwildor send her back then to make sure that doesn't happen? Halfway into the portal, it finally hits her, but it's too late. She barely gets any words out before she's sucked back to Earth. But, somehow, she and Kevin are both in the past now, the day her parents would have left, and she has her second chance. She prevents them from leaving, she and Kevin both get to keep their memories of everything that happened with the Eternians, and everything's great. Uh, what? Clearly this is meant to be a shock moment for the audience, as if we've been rooting for this to happen the whole movie or something. And I think it's banking that we'll be too busy applauding for this couple to get their perfect happy future together that it won't even occur to us how little sense this makes. Well, that tragic backstory is random and serves no purpose except to give Julie some character-defining thing and so that Evil Lynn can turn the tables on He-Man before Skeletor shows up and get the cosmic key when she pretends to be Julie's mother. 
All it really does is make Julie stereotypically boneheaded, and it's right out of an ultra-sappy TNG episode. How appropriate is that since it's 1987? I understand being monumentally blinded because you never got over your parents' death and you blame yourself, but come on! You're dealing with bizarre creatures from another world, and all of a sudden your mother shows up in an alleyway, just happens to know where you are, claims she didn't die in the plane crash with some kind of cover-up for super-secret work she was doing, so now they're Peter Parker's parents, I guess, and she doesn't take two seconds to say, by the way, what was all that shooting and are you okay? But she buys it and gives fake Jane Seymour the key. It's a plot device so the bad guys can get their hands on the artifact, but we didn't really need that since it's going to bounce back and forth between each side again before Skeletor ruins it and goes back to Eternia. So anyway, now we've got to pay off that pointless, tragic backstory since it's there, and so we have this thrown-in time travel thing. First off, like He-Man's sword, I don't know enough about it. Is it a psychic key? Did it somehow know when Julie wanted to go and took them there, and somehow her desires trump Kevin's since we know he just wants to get back to the time they left? Does Gwildor have telepathy, knows when Julie wants to go, and has some psychic connection to the key to send them there? The whole thing makes zero sense. I also don't know how it takes them to their past, but that doesn't affect time in the rest of the universe. Again, I ask, are we in a parallel reality? I mean, time certainly seems to move at the same rate both on Earth and in Eternia. Remember, we've got a ticking time bomb on the other world. Skeletor gets back with plenty of time to spare, waiting for Moonrise. Despite the no fewer than four different alien terms for units of time thrown out by Gwildor throughout the movie, it seems to be exactly the same between them. So aren't Kevin and Julie going to go through this whole cosmic key business again when they catch up the present day? I mean, now that they know what's coming and Julie doesn't have the dead parent thing Evelyn can manipulate, maybe the whole thing will go a lot smoother this time, but it doesn't even occur to them. I think it's ripping off Back to the Future. You know, when Marty returns home and sees what effect his meddling in the past has on his parents. The difference is, he's in his present moving forward. Why aren't there two Kevins and two Julies now? It's a really hackneyed, poorly conceived ending, and it brings the whole movie down quite a bit because it's also borderline offensive to anyone who's lost a loved one like that. Julie's backstory at first seems to be there to illustrate the differences between these two worlds. One is totally black and white, and the other, our world, is filled with shades of gray. Things always work out on Eternia. A zillion laser beams and nobody ever gets hurt. Good always prevails. But on Earth, bad things happen to good people. Actions have consequences. And even when you're only indirectly responsible, it's hard not to blame yourself when you could have prevented people you care about getting hurt if only you'd known the outcome. Especially when it happens because of a selfish decision you know you shouldn't have made in the first place, like Julie's. There was an opportunity to do something really poignant here. To show these human beings a fairy tale world and then take it away from them and remind them that their lives aren't that way and they have to learn to accept the past and move on. Instead, we get puppy dogs and rainbows. As long as you're not straight up evil, everything works out for you. You could argue that Julie earns that fairy tale ending, redeems herself by helping He-Man, but first of all, she's more of a liability than anything. Kevin turns out to be the indispensable one, only because he's the only guy around with perfect pitch and the ability to play the keyboard. And second, Lubick gets the fairy tale ending too, and he's kind of a jerk face. It's trying too hard to force in some human drama for the adults and present Earth as kind of realistic. And it needed to be more thoughtful about mixing real-world issues with the cartoon if it was going to go there. Because if you think too much about the implications of that ending, it's kind of wrong. 
One of the things I really enjoy about this movie is that, as John Byrne says, it's the closest thing anybody's made to a new Gods movie. Skeletor is a pretty great stand-in for Darkseid, and of course, Thanos is Marvel's answer to Darkseid. It's kind of surprising how much Infinity Gauntlet is here before that book was ever published, especially seeing all that play out in the Marvel movies now. Our villain is after a cosmic key instead of a cosmic cube. He ends up possessing unlimited power and reveling in it for a while before he gets it taken away from him by the hero. He sees himself as deserving of that power, makes examples of those who challenge him, and doesn't hesitate to kill any of his followers when they fail him. And I wonder if death would spurn Skeletor the same way she spurns Thanos. Skeletor kind of seems like her type. And it's neat that the New Gods thing isn't an accident. Gary Goddard is a Jack Kirby fan, and he set out to make a movie that looked like a cosmic comic book. He even wanted to hire Kirby to do the initial set designs, but Canon wouldn't let him. Jeez, tie the man's hand behind his back, give him only $17 million to make this movie, force him to set the majority of it on present-day Earth, cut his shooting time short and make him shoot part of the ending after he no longer had access to the Eternity set, and with part of his own salary, and don't even let him set aside some of the budget to hire the single most qualified person to design the sets, the guy who's inspired every cosmic and space adventure that's come after Fantastic Four, and without whom, I would argue, you wouldn't even have He-Man. I gotta say, after listening to Goddard's commentary, it's hard not to blame Canon for a lot of the lame, counterintuitive, and cheap moves this movie made just to make a quick buck on a popular property. No wonder they went bankrupt right after this. You gotta spend money to make money, and if you're having huge money troubles, dial it back and do different kinds of films instead of paltry excuses for movies that should be epic spectacles like He-Man and Superman. It's almost as boneheaded as Orion thinking UHF would save their studio. Cannon pitched the project to Goddard as, quoting him from his commentary, He-Man on a budget. Well, that's what the movie should have been called. Masters of the Universe on a budget. And no colon, just like Star Trek Into Darkness. Viewers would have at least known what they were getting themselves into when He-Man's on Earth fighting creatures that were never in the show in a high school gym. Fans would be less likely to say, this isn't anything like He-Man, and might say something more like, oh yeah, He-Man on a budget. Okay. Oh well, it's really for the best this and Superman 4 bombed and the studio went under. Apparently, had this been successful, we would have gotten that sequel Skeletor Promises just before the cheesy sitcom still frame after the credits, and it would have been set on Earth again, this time, not kidding, with Skeletor masquerading as an evil corporate CEO. God no thank you, and how lucky are we that the money-saving tactics didn't go quite that far this time. At least here we've got a real Skeletor and a cool-looking Castle of Grayskull, even if Eternia is limited to one set. Oh, and get this, Canon had Spider-Man rights, so their next title would have been Spider-Man on a budget, and Spider-Man would have seen a treatment no doubt similar to Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, or the 1990 Captain America movie. And people hated Amazing Spider-Man too. We don't know how lucky we have it. I love Skeletor, I love the art design, the cast is having a blast, and no matter how bad the material is at any given point, that is infectious to me. And there's some legitimately well-written melodrama. But our hero is a block of wood. The thing is just too long and overwritten for the simplicity of the story. There's a lot of rookie mistakes made in the cinematography and directing. There's almost no fight choreography at all. And there's a lot of disconnected ideas and subplots that never coalesce into anything. It's really no surprise that Frank Langella looks back on his role in this fondly, remembering it as a blast to play, while Dolph Lundgren says it's the worst thing he ever did. Both strike me as an accurate memory of the piece. 
Because of its myriad narrative issues, I really should rate this a 1 or a 1.5, but man, despite all of that, I was so entertained by it, I can't bring myself to rate Masters of the Universe anything less than a 2. Ba, ba, ba.